0: you will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 537 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the podcast Dr. Mike Simpson. Now, Mike has recently written a book called Honed, focusing on the aging tactical athlete. Mike himself was still deploying at the age of 48 with special forces, so decided to draw on his own experiences and talk about the tools needed to forge longevity while still maintaining performance. So we discuss a host of topics, from maintaining mobility through to testosterone and everything in between. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every single week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Dr. Mike simpson enjoy well mike i want to start by saying Thank you so much for coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast. Our last conversation was episode 37. So that must have been about four years ago now.
1: It, it, it really doesn't seem that it was four. I, I swear I thought it was like last year. <laughs> we're going to talk know. about aging
0: brains. So <laughs> right? I, don't,
1: I don't know if that's because of COVID time or, or what, but I swear I thought it was last year.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I was talking to, to my wife because I mean, there's an element this year that seems to have flown by. But then I told yeah. her, well, that was when we got, you know, my son got one of those little electric skateboards and my, my bonus boy, my older son, got a barbell set. And, mm. you know, when we punctuate with that, we were like, shit, actually, that seems forever ago. So it's like a weird <laughs> duality to this time the last couple of years.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so what I'd love to do, um, because it was, you know, so long ago and it's going to factor into your age, you know, as you transition out, as you open your book, um, can you give an overview again of of your... You know, kind of when you when you enlisted, and then just kind of walk me through um, the kind of bullet points of your career and how old you were when you were still operating. When you decided to transition out?
1: Yeah, so um, I uh, two weeks out of high school, so I was eighteen years old. Uh, two weeks after graduation, I shipped off on on an infantry ranger contract in 1984. Spent four years in the ranger battalion. Uh, Thought I wanted to get out and be in federal law enforcement, so uh, I I ETS'd, but I stayed in the National Guard. I was in a Special Forces National Guard unit. That uh, that unit subsequently got mobilized for Desert Storm Desert Shield, although we didn't deploy overseas, Um, but that was a time for me to be back on active duty to uh, attend Special Forces Assessment Selection and Special Forces Qualification course. And that was the point that I decided, you know, I kind of dabbled in being a civilian. I dabbled in in being a college student. I worked as a corrections officer. None of that really suited me. I, I'm really much more suited to a military lifestyle uh, and being, being a part uh, of something in the military. So went back on active duty as a special forces engineer, sergeant, did that for a few years, wanted a mental challenge. So I went to the special forces Medic, medical sergeant's course. And became an SF medic. That was really the point where I knew that the, probably the rest of my life would would have something to do with medicine. So, um, eventually, uh, applied to and was accepted to medical school. Did a residency in emergency medicine. All the while, my plan being that I, I wanted to come right back to the special operations community. And serve as a physician in that capacity, you know, taking care of of the guys who are right at the tip of the spear, which I did. I was fortunate to get a, a coveted assignment to the Joint Special Operations Command a Joint Medical Augmentation Unit as a, an EM physician. Did that for six years and five deployments, <clears throat> and that was the point. And that's that's really where my book starts, which is uh, you know talking about the fact that. I was 48 years old. I was a board-certified emergency medicine physician, but my life kind of went full circle in that I was, I was out in Afghanistan at 48 years old, going out on actual missions with, the, with rangers from the same ranger battalion that I was assigned to from 1984 to 1988. So it, my career really did go full circle in that respect, that I was out doing ranger things again. Uh, Thirty years later um, and keeping up and li- still living the operator lifestyle, even though my official capacity there was was as a physician you 're really only a medic or only a physician when somebody gets hurt, so up until that point, your responsibility is the same as anyone else in that movement formation, anyone else in that maneuver unit um, and uh, it was really it was it was surreal and fulfilling at the same time. Um, I retired in 2016, and and I work now uh, as a SWAT physician uh, here in Central Texas.
0: Beautiful. Well, I mean, there's so much to unpack. I want to retroactively ask a question I think I started asking after we spoke. There's a couple as those closing questions I don't think I asked you before, but as you well know, we, the civilian population, um, get a very polarizing view of war. And I say this right. you know, preface this the same way every time either kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers. And so what I love to do is get the soldier, the sailor, the airman's, you know, perspective of what they actually saw good and bad. So as you, you know, as you, in, uh, began your military career, um, was there a moment where you found yourself in, you know, wherever it was at that point, because I know you were in pretty early, where you realized, regardless of the politics that sent you to that place, that you were there to protect whoever? And, and I think that a lot of us miss that a lot of the people that are, you know, suffering at the hands of some of this extremism are the people of that same country.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, and, you know, for me, I, you know, I served under Ronald Reagan, both Bush's. Bill Clinton, uh, and President Obama, uh, and a and retired uh, when President Obama was in office. So obviously, a lot of political disparity, a lot of foreign policy disparity um, in the different uh, uh, institutions uh, during my period at 32 years of service. And that was never, uh, it, it's certainly something that you think about. But, like you say, when when you're there, when you're deployed, when I was in Colombia or Bolivia or Peru uh, during the Clinton administration or the Bush senior administration, it really made no difference to me. It's you know what I was there to do um, was what I was there to do. And at the end of the day, it really is true. the The line from, uh, Black Hawk Down is is really true. Is you, you're not you're not doing it for somebody sitting in an office somewhere. You're not doing it for a piece of paper or for a flag. Uh, you're really when the when the rubber meets the road. It's for the people to your left and right. And you know I, I'm going to be the best version of myself that I can be because if I don't, the other three guys that I'm going that I'm stacking on that door and going through that door with. Uh, I'm going to be the weak link and that that could cause uh, harm to come to one of them. And I don't want that to happen. So you don't give a whole lot of reflection. I mean, it's certainly something that gets talked about in the evenings when the mission is over uh, and, you're, and you're sitting around uh, watching the news at the end of the day, but it's not something you dwell on. And you really can't, if you're, if you're so focused on that. And I've seen people in my career that are just so hyper-focused on politics and who happens to be in office that, uh, that it affects them in their day-to-day work. And uh, you have to be as apolitical as possible when you wear the uniform. We, we all have our politics, certainly. But uh, you're, not, you're not there to be an instrument of politics. You're there to be uh, an instrument of defense to this, to this nation and globally.
0: Yeah. Now, with, were there any moments where you witnessed, you know, atrocities? And you don't, I'm not looking for, you know, graphic description, but where, again, you realize that you were the peacekeepers in that particular moment?
1: Um, not, not that I witnessed with my own eyes, but I, I can tell you there were two times in my career where things like that uh, came, came to bear. One was uh, early on in one of my first deployments to Colombia. Before the U.S. was 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 really as involved as as we ultimately became, and hearing some of the stories as they were related uh, by Colombian troops about things that were going on on target um, was a little bit concerning. And that's uh, the, one of the focuses when I was in Seventh Group was you know we integrated uh, you know law of war training and uh, you know human rights training. In everything that we did, because that's something that had been, you know, been missing in, in, in a lot of the a lot of the South American militaries. They just didn't have training in that. Um, the other time that it came up, uh, I I didn't go to Bosnia, but I was on a team that was preparing to go to Bosnia, and the stories that we were hearing out of Bosnia about atrocities, you know, from atrocities from Serbs. Uh, uh, atrocities from Croats, atrocities from UN peacekeepers. Um, I mean, I'm talking stacks and stacks and stacks of reports. Um, And and shockingly, what most people don't realize is most of them were about the the UN peacekeepers and the atrocities that that they were committing. And it's something that we knew that when we hit the ground, it was something we're going to have to be acutely aware of and have an eye on ultimately that balloon never went up and we we never deployed to bosnia so so it ended up being a moot point but i can remember it was something that we definitely had a lot of leadership conversations centered around for just that reason
0: now what do you think was the nature of atrocities from the peacekeepers was was it was it a religious or political bias from whatever country they were from
1: no there was uh there's been a, f- a couple of times this is I, I i cringe anytime somebody talks about sending in the un because there's there's really no vetting process that goes on at all and it, you have to think anytime that the un goes in somewhere it, things are bad right so you know typically you're talking about uh, a refugee you know large scale refugee situation is usually taking place war torn countries uh People that are in that situation, especially refugees, are pretty easy to take advantage of if people are being unscrupulous. And uh, there were the, there's been more than one incident in my career where we've had verified information about the UN being somewhere, uh, a few different places in Africa and also in, in Bosnia that I'm that I'm aware of from reading direct reports on this that uh, UN peacekeepers were involved in uh, sex trafficking, in uh, sexual assault, um, in you know, assaulting minors, in stealing from locals, stealing from refugees, scamming refugees out of their money. I can give you safe passage, but you're going to have to give me X, Y, and Z. Um, it's, uh, the UN is, is just fraught with, with corruption on so many levels. It's uh, I, I, I can't imagine anything worse than than being on the ground in need and seeing those blue helmets show up, because in my opinion, oftentimes the U.N. causes a lot more problems than they solve.
0: See, that's an interesting perspective. Um, so flipping it around. So we're not all doom and gloom. The other side of the question is, were there moments during, you know, your time in, in, a, in a combat zone where you witnessed, uh, you know, kindness and compassion amongst all that
1: violence? Absolutely. That's uh, when uh, the, my first exposure to to armed conflict uh, was in Bolivia, and I was I was there during the CocaLero uprising of uh, 97, 98. seven ninety eight. I'd have to go back and and look, uh, but somewhere around that time frame, and uh, civilians were getting caught in the crossfire between the CocaLeros who were were ambushing the Bolivian na- national police and also the Bolivian military, uh, and a lot of them were were getting injured uh, or, or killed. And there were a lot of heroics from the Bolivian police, from the Bolivian military, you know charging into gunfire, charging into uh, having uh, field expedient grenades in the form of sticks of dynamite with rocks taped to them thrown at them to retrieve innocent civilians uh, and get them out of harm's way and get them to me so that I could provide medical aid. And uh, that happened on a number of occasions, and at least on a couple of those, uh, it was, it was, it resulted in these uh, Bolivian police officers getting wounded in the process. You know, risking their life to 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 go out there and get someone who just you know by by happenstance was again caught in the crossfire, and and in some cases even sympathetic to the CocaLeros cause, not sympathetic to the to the police, but. Uh, they put that aside, and saw, you know this is an injured civilian laying here in the middle of a firefight. Somebody has to do something.
0: yeah, and I think those are the stories that we also don't hear. you know we hear about you know the the member of the military who's you know thrown in the brig for whatever you know those make the news all the time we don 't hear a lot about you know what 's actually going on there we don 't hear about the humanitarian work that 's done by our military, by other you know members of the military we don 't hear about the heroism of. The indigenous people where we are you know so it's so important that we hear these stories from people like you
1: yeah you know we, and we also don't you know things that don't get talked about is uh they an iraqi family or an afghan family who maybe they don't have a direct uh, a direct connection in the form of you know being an interpreter interpreter or being an enabler for the united states department of defense but uh, an american soldier sailor or airman encounters them and identifies a need and sends an email back home and the next thing you know that service members church is putting on a fundraiser to help this family to finance an operation for a child or you know to finance putting a new roof Uh, on their house you know because you know uh, bad weather is coming and those are the stories that you don't you know you certainly hear about the story of the soldiers doing doing things wrong but spending their own money or raising money on their own to help out an Iraqi family an Afghan family a Somali family a Yemeni family those are the things you don't hear about
0: no exactly now I want to get another perspective from you because you did spend a lot of time in Afghanistan specifically um I've had quite a few members of specifically the Green Beret community, um, but it seems to be the same kind of message. If we got to go back and do Afghanistan again, so post 9-11, the attacks would just happen, it seems like there's a push from the Special Forces Special Operations community that if they'd been able to go in and execute the way they wanted to execute, whether it was actually taking out targets, whether it was training up you know, the armies at the time, we would have been able to withdraw... You know, 18 years ago. Now, what, what is your perspective tactically of, you know, in an ideal world, king for a day um, with the military background that you have, how we could have handled it differently?
1: Yeah, I think there's I think there is something to be said for that. And it's it, I heard the years ago, I heard the same argument uh, levied about Vietnam, that if we would have kept Vietnam to a special forces advisor uh, type conflict. That we would have been a lot more successful. Is that true? I mean, there's really no way to turn back the clock and know for sure. I think there's certainly an argument to be made that um, after the initial conventional push was made and we gained a lot of ground in the form of, uh, uh, you know, key areas, you know, Bagram Bagram Air Force Air Base being uh, probably the most prominent. But, you know, once we had control of places like Bagram, Kabul, uh, Kandahar, and we had these key locations locked down. Yeah, conducting it as more of an as a counterinsurgency and uh, more of an unconventional war probably would have been a much better route to go. Um, uh, unfortunately, we just we never got we never got the level of proficiency out of our partner units that we really hoped for. And I I know that at the at the a-team level, at the, at the level of the Green Berets who are on the ground training these guys, you know, they, they would send reports up and they would be brutally honest about the level of competency that they were seeing, technical and technical proficiency. And that tends to get, as it goes up each level in the chain of command, it tends to get watered down. So, you know, by the time that's reach, reaching up to, you know, say general officer level, you know, what the, the report of, Hey, these guys are nowhere near ready. By the time that that same report gets up to general officer level, it might have been watered down to say um, they're steadily improving, right? Which which might have been a little bit of an overstatement. So, what we could have done differently there, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's I, I know that one thing that I had the freedom to do in uh, when I when I trained the first the first medic platoon for the, for the, uh, Colombian counter narcotics battalion. That was the first time in my SF career that I was allowed to say, you are either going to pass or fail. And if you fail, then you're not going to even going to be in this unit anymore. Um, and typically we weren't allowed to do that. Typically it's like, we're there to give the training, but in the end, everybody's going to get a certificate because, you know, obviously they're not going to do everything to us standards. I think it, had we kept this as a more unconventional war, had we kept it more in a in a force multiplier type um, strategy, and pushed our partner units to maintain and achieve higher standards, I think that would have gone a long way. And I honestly think, and this is, I was interested to watch the testimony by General Milley and uh, Secretary Austin uh, Lloyd Austin this last week. A lot of finger pointing going on is was the first thing that that struck me and a lot of oh yeah well i to- i totally told the president that we were going to need to leave troops behind and i think that we probably should have drawn down to a level you know somewhere somewhere between you know 2500 and 5000 troops again keeping keeping the the unconventional force multiplier role active would have been an ideal role for these uh, security forces assistance brigades that we have in the military now that aren't as capable as a special forces team, but certainly uh, are tasked with training. So they certainly could have taken the the, the torch and, and run with it at that point. And then, you know, maintaining Bagram, maintaining key areas and having a little bit more of a comprehensive plan for withdrawal, which obviously we did not have, you know, we, it, I, I've heard this said multiple times and it's true is I don't know the best way to do it, but we, we witnessed the worst way to do it, which is, you know, completely abandoning uh, our best airfield asset being Bagram, even though it's only 30 miles away from Kandahar and then trying trying to, or from Kabul rather, and then trying to evacuate Kabul, a city of four and a half million people, you know, evaluate, we're going to try to evacuate tens of thousands of, of, of U.S. citizens, of of partners, of people with special immigrant visas. And we're going to do that on one single airstrip with one gate uh, that is almost impossible to secure. Um, definitely not the right way to go about it.
0: No, well, thank you for your perspective. Because again, you know, you, you've had such a, a long career and, and much of which was in that country. So, you know, for the average Joe like myself, you know, it's, it's important that we get that because as you said, you know, what you see with COVID, with the withdrawal, with with so many of these issues is blamestorming, you know, not brainstorming. <laughs> yeah. And yep. it's and it's nauseating because, you know, these are the people that, that you know, wear the, the term leadership on their chest. And right now, they've been called, you know, that they've been called to actually do their job. And I think that we've seen the true leaders of the world. You know, some countries have done this very, very well, and we've seen the people masquerading that are happy to take the paychecks, and now you when know, when asked to actually lead, they fail miserably.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that, and it's again, I was really shocked by you know immediately that you know I I, I watched I didn't watch all of those hearings, but I I did watch uh, I, I watched the very beginning. And I found it pretty telling that you know uh, Secretary uh, Austin really set the tone on the very first question. On the very first question, he immediately went to, "Oh, that's not a DoD thing. That's that's a Department of State thing." So he was he was deflecting and uh, finger pointing and blame storming, as you said, uh, right out of the gate. And that's uh, it, it says a lot about him and his character.
0: Absolutely. Well, transitioning to the book, then so. Firstly, you're, you know, 48, you're 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 still, as you said, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the, the Rangers that you were serving with. Um, what, what was that last deployment for like for you physically and mentally? And then what ultimately was a factor that made you decide to pull the trigger on transitioning out?
1: Um, physically, it was challenging, but uh, both physically and mentally, it was rewarding because, you know, as I say in the book, it was... It was kind of a final exam. Is, is I pretty much knew at that point, um, I ended up doing two deployments very close. Uh, one was scheduled, which was the one to Afghanistan. I had one a few months before that that was not scheduled. Um, that was just, I got a phone call of, hey, we're, we need you to get on a plane. Um, and it was, uh, you know, the stress that that entails, on, on family, on, uh, on everything else that you have going on, the fact that I was, knew that I was going to retire in you know, 2015, 2016, and I was getting close to that, I was on my glide path to retirement. Um, so it, it was rewarding for me you know, knowing this is, this is going to be my last hurrah, but it's also a validation of the fact that I, I can still do this at age 48. I can keep up. I'm an asset. I'm not a liability. Uh, and that was in- incredibly rewarding. And, uh, you know, ultimately I knew, again, that I, I, around 2015, 2016 timeframe, uh, all of my obligations uh, would, would be paid back to the military for medical school. And uh, the war was winding down. There were, We already knew in, uh, you know, 2013, 2014 that, that the military role in Afghanistan was going to change pretty radically, which it did. Later on that year, after I left, so the deployments weren't going to be the same. The op tempo wasn't going to be as high, and we were starting to look. You know, this this was all part of our exit strategy, and uh, I thought that was as good a time as you know, having been in a peacetime army, I didn't want to be in a peacetime army again. <laughs> so you know, so it was a it was a good time for me to get out, and I I started uh, looking at what I what I needed to do to prepare to retire, and uh, you know, dusted off the resume and started putting in job applications to, to work as a, as a physician in the civilian sector.
0: Beautiful. Well, I think when we spoke, you were still with Sheepdog Response then. I believe you were an ER physician at that point. So yep. walk me through the last four years and, and what made you decide to write Honed?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I stopped working clinically and that, that ended up, uh, I transitioned out of clinical work. I went from being a full-time uh, EM physician to a part-time EM physician. And then because of what I was doing with Sheepdog and also what I was doing, uh, I was still doing a little bit of reality television at the time. It was necessitating that I took a lot of time away from the department and department chiefs don't like that very much. <laughs> so I ended up go, uh, becoming what they call a locums physician, which is kind of a don't call us, we'll call you. Like when, when we have a real need, maybe during the holidays or, you know, we've got some night shifts that need to be filled. We'll, we'll give you a call. So I did that for a while. Um, I ultimately ended up leaving Sheepdog, not, uh, not because I didn't believe in the mission and, and believe in everything that company was doing, but um, it just wasn't fitting in as often as they needed me. And in the capacity that they needed me, it was interfering with some other things that I had going on in my life at the time. And I thought it would be best, you know, T- Tim and I had a conversation and I, uh, and we both thought it would be best for me in the long run and for the company in the long run. If, uh, if, if I stepped aside and, and somebody else, uh, fill, started filling those duties as medical training director. And, uh, they ended up, uh, hiring uh, Sergeant major, Matt Smith, who's done a, an excellent job working for sheepdog. I still have a, an excellent relationship with all those guys. In fact, I'm on a zoom call immediately following this interview. I'm on a zoom call with all the guys from sheepdog. Um, I am, uh, I am a global clinical advisor for a company called Safeguard Medical. Now, and uh, we're going to be talking. We're having a, a conversation with Sheepdog about what the two companies can possibly do working together moving forward. Um, I don't. I'm not giving away any any uh, industry secrets by by saying that we're going to have that conversation. And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone because everybody knows that I have connections to both companies. So, um, but where I got into to writing honed was you know I I I continued. Then there were ups and downs. There were times, you know, when I first got out a- after the very rewarding deployment and being in really good physical shape, um, my fitness started to slip again when I got out, you know, there, I didn't have the external motivation factor. Scheduling was a problem. A lot of things in life got in the way. Um, so again, I had to, I had to recalibrate and, and get back in shape again, but I still wanted to do all those things. And I still, I'm still very active, um, you know, with with SWAT on both uh, a local level and on a state level, which means long days wearing kit out at the range, uh, in the shoot house, getting up at two o'clock in the morning to go serve warrants. So you know, being in good physical shape. You know, if if I have to if I have to drag a two hundred and twenty pound SWAT operator plus his kit off of the X to render aid, I, I need to be able to do that. Um, so again, I was I was constantly refining and honing to use the word uh my my recipe for how to do that you know now in my 50s and i noticed that through my through my podcast and through my social media presence i was always getting emails from from people from guys in their 40s in their 50s hey doc what what should i should i do crossfit hey doc should i do uh you know this power lifting should i do olympic lifts am i too old for jujitsu is uh, i've had a back surgery can i do jujitsu what kind, of, what kind of diet plan should I be on? What kind of supplements should I be taking? And I was answering all the same questions again and again and again and again. And uh, at, at one point, I even think I said out loud, you know, it, it'd be great if when somebody emails me these questions, I just send them a link and say, here, here's a link to everything. And it's all there. You know, even the questions you're not answering, it's all there. And that was kind of the acorn that uh, eventually became honed. Uh, and, you know, became the, the book that's uh, that's an Amazon number one bestseller now.
0: Beautiful. Well, congratulations for a start. Thank you. <laughs> um, so the term that you use, which I really like, is warrior athlete. Now, you know, your profession, my profession, you know, the associated professions. Um, it's very easy for people, you know, maybe not in, in special operations specifically, but, you know, maybe in the regular military or, you know, in slower firehouses to start thinking that you know just moving a little just you know maybe having an apple a day the very kind of basal wellness advice that you see offered to to many people especially now in this you know kind of gentler world and, and i think that really applies to you know ownership in their in their health um you know it can can kind of muddy the waters a little bit so i consider you know fire police ems to all be warrior athletes as well so kind of Talk to me about that concept versus maybe the average civilian that's pushing papers for a living.
1: Yeah the uh, the average the average person I think that, and this is I think is true of most people. This is even true of some people I would I would venture to say in the military that uh, or first responders that they they tend to look on fitness and wellness in one of two ways either as a chore, um, you know, and, and you. you language revolves around this. So you start hearing language like, Oh, I've got to," I'm so tired. I got to get a workout in, or I'm going to have, to, or if I don't, I'm going to have to get up tomorrow early to get the workout in. Right. It starts a, a lot of, a lot of language cues that, that point to it being in this, this obligation, this chore, you know, it's just like, it's just like breaking down the cardboard boxes the night before the, the recycle truck comes. And it, 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 and it's, Something you don't want to do. It leave, just even talking about it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. So that's one way that people tend to look at it. Another way that people tend to look at it as this hobby that they kind of dabble in. And that if they just show up, well, they kind of did. you know, I put the clothes on and I showed up. And I did, you know, I was on a machine over here for a little bit. And I was on a machine over there for a little bit. And that's more than most people are doing. So yeah, I checked that block. So, so I, you know, I did, I did a good thing. So I'm, I'm working out, you know, not, I don't have a plan or anything, but I'm working out. So, you know, they're a hobbyist. And the realization that I had was, if you look at fitness and wellness, the way a warrior looks at things, that I'm going to get up every morning and today, my mission is to be a slightly better version of myself than I was yesterday, than I was a week ago. That's the way a warrior looks at it. You know, the 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 last thing a warrior is thinking about before they lay down to sleep is is all their equipment in the best shape that it can be in case that moment that they get up, they are, you know, instantly called to engage in combat. So as a warrior athlete, you know, at night when you lay down to go to sleep, you ask yourself, did I do everything today to prepare my body to be the best version of myself that I can be? Did I squeeze everything out of today when it comes to that? And am I going? Am I laying down to sleep with knowing that when I get up tomorrow, I have a plan to continue that, and I also know what what nutrition is going into my body tomorrow, what supplements are going into my body, uh, that you know how much water I'm going to drink tomorrow because I've prepared for it in that way. You know, it's I, I don't know any soldier who goes to bed with with a dirty weapon and you know with his his magazines not full. Uh, his or her magazine's not full. Nobody goes to sleep in the firehouse knowing that the hoses aren't aren't put back on the truck properly, and that the narc box in the ambulance isn't restocked properly. And I don't even know where my boots or my pants are. But I'm tired, so I'm just going to get some sleep. You have to look at you have to look at it the same way. You have to look at it as a warrior. And you know, when I, I lay down, I lay down to sleep at night. My workout clothes for the next day are laid out. There's a 16 ounce bottle of water on my nightstand that I'm going to drink as soon as I get up. I know that I have supplements in the morning. I know that I have a healthy meal in the morning and I have a plan for the next day. And once you embrace the warrior athlete lifestyle, that this is my mission every day, you start to crave it and you really start to love it and enjoy it on a whole different level than you do if you look at it as a chore or as a hobby.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. The example you gave, something that popped into my head immediately. There are the firefighters who will ensure, for example, their air pack is topped off completely. And there are, uh, you know, a, I guess what was the right word I'm looking for? A disappointingly large amount of people that I've ever, you know, got from shift change where, oh, your pack's good. You know, it's at 39, 4,000. Now, to me, if I'm stuck in a fire, I'm going to be glad that I put as much as I could in that damn bottle because you never know if it might affect your, you know, someone else's life, your own life, et cetera. And I think that's a, that's a great kind of like metric. If you're the person that's allowed yourself to go from diligent to start slipping down to, oh, it will be fine. Then, you know, that's probably affecting your, your uh, strength and conditioning standards, your nutrition standards, your rest and recovery standards.
1: Yeah all of the all of the above. All of the above.
0: Well, another thing that I've seen as far as resistance to exercise, and I, I'm so careful to make sure that people understand that the first responder community sets our men and women up to fail. You know, the mm-hmm. way that we're worked, the, you know, the sleep deprivation, the mm, you know, yes. the, the the stress as far as some of the, the poor leadership, the busy work, and all these things compound, and they really it is really an uphill struggle to be fits in the fire service and in many, many departments. But one thing I get, you know, is kind of like that whole philosophy of, oh yeah, but working out is hard. And again, I think, you know, what we need to do as a profession is take a step back and go, well, if you think working out is hard, then how are you going to perform on the fire ground? Because the fire ground is hard, you know? So again, I think that's, I don't know if you find that in the military with some of, some of the, the men as they start progressing through, but, um, you know, it's a very, very slippery slope to start, as you said, viewing exercise as a burden rather than an absolute essential element of your performance.
1: You know the old the old saying. Uh, you know, choose your hard is really true. Is you know you, you can choose your hard. You know the the hard that I chose today was um, uh, I was doing uh, Zercher split squats, which I hate doing uh, because it's basically a weighted lunge and, uh, I hate doing them anyway. And I, and my right hip is, uh, is awful. So it makes it even worse. Uh, you know, I had to do deadlifts today. I had to do foot elevated goblet squats today. I had to do a lot of exercises today that I frankly do not enjoy in the moment. (laughs) I just don't, I like deadlift. That's not really true. Um, but but it's important. I have to choose that hard, and I, and then I finished it off with with you know fifteen calorie bike sprints, which are debilitating. And they're, but I'm choosing that hard. I'm choosing to just push myself to the point of exhaustion there, because when I get on the jujitsu mat. I'm not going to gas when I'm rolling, and you know, heaven forbid, I I have to put my hands on somebody in a real situation, either out with my family or in my capacity as a SWAT physician, um, and I have to you know engage in unarmed or armed combat with somebody. I'm going to be physically better able to do so because you don't want to be on your back in the dark with nobody coming and getting stabbed in the chest and think. Wow! If I would have done a few more Turkish get-ups, I'd be in better shape right now, and I could get this guy off me. That's not the thought you want going through your head, as the blood oozes from your body and you lose consciousness.
0: No, exactly. And I think you know, there's there's a philosophy, um, a kind of famous quote in the fire service: "Would you want you saving you?" And you know, I always <laughs> right? say that's that's great, but that's kind of all about you. My thing yeah. is, how would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained? You know, mm. put yourself in that situation. You're you're the grieving father or mother because that person hadn't taken their job seriously. I think that's even more sobering.
1: Yep. It's very sobering.
0: So well, you mentioned jujitsu. That's something that I've uh, actually become much more immersed in now when I finally transitioned out the fire service and got off shift work. Awesome. Um was rolling this morning and a great gym here in Gainesville. Um so before we kind of get onto the you know, strength and conditioning and the aging side, while we're on that topic. Um, you have a chapter on martial arts. So talk to me about the, the older athlete and martial arts. Uh, it's,
1: it, and it's, it, there's a weird dichotomy there for me because on, on one hand, I, you know, I often think to myself, gosh, I really wish I would have started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in my 20s or 30s because I think about how far I would have advanced. And, and, but at the same time, I'm, I'm appreciative that I started it later in life. Because I do have to rely more on technique, and I I can't re, you know I can't rely on on youth and energy and the strength of youth, so I, I think it forces me to to look at jujitsu differently, and I also think I have a little bit greater appreciation for it. But the reason I think uh, martial arts as a whole, but Brazilian jujitsu specifically, is is important and beneficial for for what I call the seasoned athlete. Is it it deconstructs your ego, and there's just, and there's and there's no lying, right? It's you know what you do on the mat is what you really do on the mat. It's not you know doing a kata or doing a demonstration video. It's real because you know you're you're sparring against a fully resistant opponent, which is uh, when it comes to fitness, that's a great gauge of how you're doing everything else. Is your is your overall fitness program really preparing you? for what you're going to need to do in a possible life or death situation, or is it all for not? You know, if, if I, if I were only doing, um, uh, let, let's say my, my thing was running and I was only running, you know, that's all I wanted to do to work out was, you know, I'm going to run eight miles a day. I'm going to get in a 10 or a 14 miler midway through the week and then do a really long run on Saturday and running is my thing you know i would probably look like i was in pretty good shape and i would get my ass kicked on the mat because although my cardio would be pretty good my sustained endurance would be pretty good i could do 7 rounds i probably wouldn't have good bursts of energy i wouldn't have power i wouldn't have strength i wouldn't have uh i wouldn't have a lot of the durability that i would need to have in my limbs to prevent injury same if i was only powerlifting is you know i would be strong i could probably lift an opponent up i could i could stand up in an opponent's guard and then slam them to the, to the ground, but I wouldn't have the endurance. I'd probably gas right after doing so. So that, that's another great thing about martial arts is it's realistic feedback on the type of strength and conditioning training that you're doing. And it's, and it really is evident. And that's why I encourage anybody, you know, I'm very partial to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. obviously I'm, I'm partial to Muay Thai, but you know, do something that's realistic, do something that you spar at full speed and, um, and they, it is a, is a true gauge of what you can do defense wise. Not all just theory. Not all katas and forms. Um, side note: I got to go to a John Danaher class yesterday, which was pretty awesome.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, he's someone I want to yeah. get on one day.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's like being in the presence of Yoda. It really is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I just um, interviewed Chad Lyman. He was my most recent uh, episode I just put out. And I saw that yeah. he uh, was wearing some of your stuff in your post the other day.
1: Yeah. 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 Chad's, Chad is amazing. I'm, I, I am really fortunate that I know, you know, uh, Chad Lyman, Jay Wadsworth, um, uh, Gareth Hornell, uh, all these guys that I, that I know, you know, Tim Kennedy, that are such high level uh, jiu jitsu players, and, you know, uh, Jason Repsch. Uh, it really makes me, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I sit and think, you know, I'm really fortunate and, and maybe I'm just way too lazy because since I know so many guys who are so good at it, I should be way better at it. But I have to, I have to kind of divorce myself from that because I have to realize that, you know, all of them started at a much younger age. You know, Chad is pretty close to my age, but I'm still older than Chad, but all of them started at a much younger age than I did. And they've been doing it for a lot more years than I have. And I just have to accept that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, my thing is I started quite a long time ago, but it was just so sporadic. So that's a kind of you know bitter pill to swallow yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, me too. That's I you know, I walked into my first I walked into my first class with a with a borrowed, it wasn't even a jujitsu gi, it was a it was a judo gi with the really long tail in the back. Uh I walked into my first, you know, introductory drop in class um probably fourteen years ago. Um, But like you say, it was sporadic. It was, you know, I would do a couple of classes one month and then go three or four months without doing a class and then do a class and then go three days, you know, three days in a week and then not go for six months. Uh, It really wasn't until 2012, 2013 that I, you know, seriously started really uh, going on on a more consistent basis.
0: Now I know that you compete in jiu-jitsu as well. One thing that I noticed even even in the fire service is the the need for a goal. So, so when you're a recruit, you know, you you're gunning to become a firefighter, then you're gunning to to be, you know, proficient in the academy and then, you know, succeed in probation. But then after that, you are a soldier, you are a firefighter, you are a cop. And it seems like the if you can find a goal, whether it's a Spartan race, whether it's a jiu-jitsu tournament, you know, whatever it is, that seems to be a good way of sustaining your strength and conditioning as well. That then will obviously, um, you know, pay forward into your performance on the fire ground or the battleground.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree a hundred percent. There's something that that I did. So the, so the the microcosm of this is uh, when when I used to go when I used to run. I I I, I do not run often now at all. I I abhor running. <laughs> Uh, in the military, obviously we ran quite a bit. And to me, it was always about running to that next lamppost, running to that next corner, running to that next fence post, running, oh, there's there's a group of people running in front of me. I'm gonna overtake them. Right. So these little short-term goals that I could pull myself faster by saying, Okay, I'm gonna run as I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run at a pretty hard pace till I get to that light post and I reach that light post. All right, I got more in me and I'm going to run to that next light post or the next corner, whatever, whatever that might be. And you can do that in life too. And exactly the way you're talking about is, you know, I'm pulling myself to that Spartan race, that triathlon, that jujitsu tournament. But what I would caution people, and and I, I talk about this in the book, is beware of letting that become an excuse to take shortcuts. Because you have to realize that it, it uh, a Spartan race, a triathlon, a jiu-jitsu competition, um, unless you're going to the Olympics and it's your lifelong goal has been to get the gold medal at the Olympics, do not fall into the allure of shortcuts. You know, it's a week out before the tournament, two weeks out before the tournament and you're not, you know, you didn't get to train as much as you wanted. So now you're putting in all this extra time, setting yourself up for injury, the path to injury is paved with shortcuts. So be careful about prioritizing your performance optimization at the expense of your longevity optimization, because in the end, the reason that you're going to do that tournament or that competition is so you can have more health and wellness in your life, not only now, six months from now, but 10 years from now. So don't lose sight of that is what I'm cautioning people on.
0: Yeah. Well, I saw that coaching CrossFit. Um, you know, people come in and I get their enthusiasm. You know, it, it does, you know, you know, you do drink the Kool-Aid when you first get in because compared to your normal, you know, workouts in whatever gym you were at prior, you, you know, you feel amazing and you start changing and it's, and it really is encouraging. But when I first started, it was very, very very early, so it was a main, uh, main site workouts, so and that was about it. Then the game started, and I watched people start coming in the gym, and within two or three months, they're already wanting to compete. And you know, as you said, if if that's something that you are truly owning as your sport, and maybe even trying to to reach a high pinnacle, then absolutely you need to come in, you need to practice all these movements. But for everyone else, I, I would tell them, look, come, you know, three four times a week, get your workouts in, get your rest and recovery in and then use that fitness for something else go out into the real world and apply the fitness to something that you absolutely love doing
1: yep uh, that's that's a great philosophy that, and that's a great that keeps things interesting too because not not only are you able to manage it because you're me- measuring it but it also gives you an enjoyable outlet you know uh, whether it's a mountain bike competition a jiu jitsu competition or or a, you know a 10k turkey trot whatever it is
0: now, you talk about performance versus longevity. And I think, you know, your you know, yours and my generation, I'm 47, so we're not too far apart. Um, you know, I look back at the way I was told strength training, you know, was, you know, I was told the way that nutrition was. And and so we were in an environment, a lot of us, again, where there's a lot of misinformation. It wasn't, there wasn't any um, malice behind it. It was just, I think, sadly, the bodybuilding world had kind of corrupted actual strength and conditioning. But, um, you know, I look back and, and look at a lot of the mistakes that I made now for the younger audience that aren't the aging athlete yet or the older athlete, um, you know, what's some of your, your principles or cautionary tales on going too far, burning the candle at both ends as and then paying the price, you know, later in life?
1: Yeah. Um- I would caution and, and, you know, if I had a time machine and I could go back to to me in my twenties or thirties, I, I would caution to respect when your body starts giving you pain signals, right? And it's not, and, and not discomfort. So, you know, you, it, when my heart rate gets up in the high, you know, one forties or mid one fifties, there's, I'm breathing hard. My heart's pounding. I have discomfort, you know? when I'm on the jujitsu mat and I'm in bottom side control, that's discomfort, but pain, you know, you're, you're in your knee, in your neck, in your back, in your foot, in your ankle, pain needs to be respected. You know, that's, that's your body's way of telling you, you are close, to, you are close to injury, if not already injured. So you need to respect that at a young age. And uh, it's, you know, not, biting a hole in your tongue and just getting through it is not always the right answer and most times is not the right answer so you need to respect the signals that your body is giving you and don't just think about what you're training for now in the short term but think about what is how is what I'm going doing in training today and this week going to affect me physically 20 or 30 years from now you know and I, uh, there was a a time in my life where really the only way that I could, I could maintain sustained cardio, uh, cardiovascular fitness was through running long distances. And so that was always my answer was, was running long distances, you know, and, and I would do this on deployments that, you know, three days a week, I would do an hour on the treadmill every day, which is incredibly boring. Um, I'm paying the price for that now. That's, you know, I've, uh, my, my knees are not in, in, in the best shape I've got the MRIs to prove it. Both of my hips are pretty thrashed. My right hip, especially, um, I've got a, I've got bone on bone in my right hip and, and a pretty high degree of, of, of arthritic, uh, you know, reactional swelling going on in there. Um, so I, I pay for it now and it's you know, that that's what happens when a, a five foot six guy who was never built to run to begin with. Thought he should be a runner because that was the best way to be in shape so um, train smart don't don't wing it and and listen to the uh the signals that your body is sending you and respect those signals
0: absolutely now, with you know the athlete the tactical athlete that's starting to get into their forties and fifties. Um, what are some of the principles or philosophies that you tell people um, regarding strength training and, and strength and conditioning?
1: Uh, first and foremost is is you, you have to have a well rounded program, and uh, this becomes more important as we get older, because um, our bodies just aren't as forgiving anymore. You know, you can in in your twenties and in your thirties, you can make up with with bad training just on the, on your body's own resiliency, right. Your, your ability to, to heal quickly uh, you know, your ability to put, you know, garbage in my twenties, I treated my digestive system like a landfill. I mean, it's, you know, literally calories were calories and I didn't care. You know, it, it, a, a, a three egg omelet with chili on top, you know, was my idea of a great breakfast. Um, you can't do that as you get older. It's, uh, you're, you're, it's more difficult for your body to heal. Your body's a lot more selective about what it can digest comf- uh, comfortably and efficiently. Um, you, supplementation needs to be paid attention to. But when it comes to just your overall fitness routine, you have to be well-rounded um, because there's a lot, of, a lot of little things that you, you don't think about when you're younger. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I like. I really, I'm very partial to single limb movements. You know things like like lunges and dumbbell presses, um, because you don't get the stabilization coming from your other limb. So you work muscles that you normally wouldn't work. So in, in addition to the prime movers, you work all these little stabilization muscles that nobody even knows the names of, <clears throat> and that's really important as we get older because that's how you prevent injury. And something I talk about in the fitness chapter is you know I talk about what I describe as the six pillars of fitness. So uh, strength, which everybody is familiar with, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the brief definition of that is, you know, how much you can lift, how much you can squat is, is how much strength you have power, which is slightly different from strength. So power is a measure of lifting a, uh, a, moving a weight through a given distance in as, in as rapidly as possible. So if squatting measures strength, then power is measured, you know, with the same, same leg muscles, but say I'm pushing a weighted sled. 10, 15 yards. That's, that's what my power is. Endurance, which is both cardiovascular endurance, right? Just, you know, my, my VO two max and how my heart and lungs are working on a long sustained run. Uh, but also muscular endurance. How many burpees can I do? Um, you know, how many, uh, wall ball throw throws followed by lunges. Can I do, you know, getting up, getting down Turkish get-ups. These are all things that work, not only your cardiovascular endurance, but your muscular endurance as well, which is equally important. And, and oftentimes can even be more important. Flexibility, which we're all familiar. So that's, that's as you're, you move your joints passively, often using gravity and mobility, which is your ability to move under power. So if if, uh, flexibility is, uh, Bruce Lee bending over and touching his forehead to his knee mobility is his, him kicking his leg up over his head where, you know, his knee touches the side of his head, but he's doing that actively, um, you know, through movement, uh, of his muscles, fascia and tendons. And then the final pillar, which I kind of hinted to earlier is durability. So durability is, uh, strengthening your ligaments that you support your joints, strengthening the supportive muscles that aid what we call the proprioceptive muscles. So if you're ever doing, uh, when you're doing yoga and you're doing these weird, you're doing warrior one, warrior two, reverse warrior, and, and, you, and you feel your foot kind of start to shake back and forth and muscles in your leg, in the front of your shin start to get tight. And these are muscles you don't normally notice. These are all your proprioceptive muscles. These are the muscles that are going to keep you from getting injured. Uh, you know, imagine you're in full turnout gear um, and you show up to a house and you throw the hose over your shoulder and you're running in your turnout gear, your turnout boots over, uh, on an uneven surface over golf ball sized gravel durability is what's going to be really 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 important there because your your legs are going to be moving at odd angles bearing weight at a different angle you know we don't in the performance of things that we do during the day it's not the same as having a barbell across our shoulders and just squatting down and squatting back up it's un, you know the terrain is uneven we're on an incline uh, our feet individual feet might not even be even because there might be a rock under one foot and not under another foot. So you need to be taking that into account. And that's why all six pillars of fitness are extremely important and more important as we age.
0: Absolutely. Now, you touched on injury. That was something that I went through my career and I want to get to sleep in a little bit because I know that was one of the underlying reasons, but um you know I had a back injury which I ended up rehabbing purely with you know with chiropractic and, and movement and a thing called foundation training um, and then I tore both meniscus over my career and sadly had to get those snipped. I 't think there was any way of rehabbing around those but um uh but regardless, I was able to get to to get back to full you know operational duty. By trusting you know, the exercise, and mobility, the you know the rehab principles, what are you seeing as far as um, application of, of mobility, flexibility, strength training to rehab some of the scars, wounds, injuries that we kind of um, amass during a career in the tactical professions?
1: Yeah, uh, I have you know both of my both of my knees are pretty shot. My my I've got meniscus damage in both knees. I've got um, ACL. ACL, PCL, LCL, and MCL damage in both knees. Um, by emphasizing all of the things that I talked about, especially uh, flexibility, mobility, and durability, my knees do not give me a lot of problems. And you know, I I do I do squats, I do deadlift, I do lunges, um, because you can through doing exercises, doing them properly, not overloading, not going for too much weight uh you can you can rehab a lot of these issues you know i and i mentioned in the book that i you know i've got an unhealed fracture in my left foot um because of the way that i work out on a typically day to day i don't feel it if i'm wearing full kit and i'm on some uh say uneven gravel somewhere we're, we're out in a rural area serving a warrant and i have to spend a lot of time walking across uneven terrain i'll start to feel it uh, but day to day, I typically don't, and it's it, you know it's because uh, the I have rehabbed the muscles in my foot, the muscles in my ankle, the muscles in my leg, that uh, I'm my gait is good, my gait is smooth. Um, I'm putting weight where it should be, my distribution is good, um, and so I don't typically have issues with it on a daily basis. Um, I have four herniated discs in my you know, two of my lower back and two on my neck and i do i do squats and exercises that a lot of people with back injuries tell me that they can't do and that's actually helped me with these issues and i even uh, not long ago i had a, an appointment with an orthopedist uh to talk specifically about my hip and he told me he said you're he said you're in great shape for 55 and i think a lot of that he said looking at your medical record looking at your mri I never expected you to walk into my office looking the way that you do. And he said, the fact that you're working out and you're doing all this stuff is why you're able to do it because you are keeping the muscles strong. You're keeping your uh, ligaments and tendons flexible and mobile. And that is enabling you to have a higher quality of life in spite of all these chronic injuries that you have, because the, you're, you're making up for it with, with strength strength with mobility, with durability, and with flexibility.
0: Yeah, well, that's so good to hear because I wrote about this in my book, um, When I Hurt My Back, this this one um, principle of philosophy foundation training that was actually founded by a chiropractor who jacked up his own back and was about to have surgery. And he was like, what kind of chiropractor am I going to be with a big scar down my spine telling everyone else that they need to do <laughs> chiropractic? Um, and if, you know, he and his... his uh, seminars he'll show an mri a current mri of his back and the damage is still there but by strengthening and lengthening the muscles and putting them back to where they should be there's no pressure on those nerves and i think that's a a big thing is that yeah i mean you you know you break your femur you're going to need to have surgery there's no question about that but so many of these musculoskeletal injuries are really um worsened just by the imbalance and if you can address the strength and you can address the mobility you're going to find a huge amount of relief of you know shoulders and neck and and all these other joints if it's not a, you know an, an extreme traumatic injury.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know and what it, most people with back injuries stop stop working out. Uh, you know they they drastically cut back how much they work out. So then what happens? Well, they their core muscles atrophy, which affects their posture. They start to get a little bit of a gut which makes their, then they get more of what we call the lordotic curve in their back. So that's worsening their posture even more. And they're now carrying more weight, right? They have, they have less muscle, but they're carrying more weight. So they're compressing the discs even more. So not working out, you know, oftentimes is, is the, the synergistic uh, effect that that has with your injury uh, is really deleterious. And I don't think it can be overstated
0: absolutely well the other side of the coin is obviously rest and recovery aside from nutrition um and something i mean you talk about flogging a dead horse when it comes to sleep <laughs> deprivation i have hit this topic hard and had experts from all the branches of the military the sporting community um because i see what happens to our you know police fire ems dispatchers you know correctional officers um and you know when i look back at my own injuries I and mean, i did everything right really i mean i i the way i trained i used to do yoga all kinds of things but the one thing i couldn't control that i underestimated was the impact of sleep deprivation on healing whether it's the muscles the tendons the ligaments so talk to me about you know your experience with sleep deprivation and 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 you know how that factors into um not only the younger but definitely the older athlete
1: yeah i uh Sleep has been has been an issue for me most of my life. I I was having sleep issues in my teens in high school. It's and I I just always felt like I was I never had enough sleep. And to this day, so I remember like it was yesterday uh, the first morning in June of 1984 when I woke up as as a soldier in the United States Army. So. Went to the reception station, took my, uh, you know, got my physical, took my oath, got on a plane, flew to Fort Benning, Georgia, got off the plane, you know, took a bus to the reception station. And, uh, you know, I think that we had a meal and then was shown to where my bunk was. And it's, uh, you know, t- tomorrow, your first full day as a soldier is going to start. And I still remember the lights coming on at five something in the morning. And my first thought being, I don't think I can do this. Like I can't get, I don't think I can get up this early every day. This sucks. This really sucks. And I remember walking around for like the first two hours, like, wow, this really sucks. Like, I really feel like crap. Uh, And I I was 18 years old and I didn't drink coffee at the time. I didn't discover coffee until many, until decades later. Um, But throughout my military career, it was an issue. And uh, you know when you deploy, a lot of times you're on what we call reverse cycle. So you're sleeping during the day, and you're going out and doing missions at night. Um, trucks are still going by outside. You know the the you know depending on where you're staying, it was it was way worse when I was in Iraq as opposed to when I was in Afghanistan. Because in Iraq, uh, I was on Balad, right off of a main road, and so there were you know trucks going by during the day when I when I we're supposed to be sleeping because we're working at night. So, uh, you know, wearing a sleep mask and earplugs and white noise machines and, uh, and trying prescription medications to help me sleep everything, but it was always an issue. And I just always, always, always felt like I was sleep deprived, which pretty much meant that anytime I got on a mode of transportation, whether it was an aircraft or in a vehicle, I could almost instantly fall asleep. And, uh, You know, the the old saying about, you know, a soldier can just lay down and go to sleep anywhere. It's really true because we're sleep deprived all the time, which means it wreaks havoc on your cortisol. Um, You're not uh, the amyloid proteins that build up in your central nervous system during the day. You're not clearing those properly, which later in life can cause cognitive issues. Uh, You know, beta amyloid plaques have been linked to Alzheimer's disease. Um, Your body's not healing Uh, you you know, you're not, again, you're not eliminating toxins and all the soft tissue repair that your body needs to shut down completely in order to accomplish is just not happening. So it doesn't matter if I did a really great workout during the day and I ate all the right foods. If I'm now not sleeping, you know, powering down so that, you know, the, uh, the, the cleanup crews can come in and the rebuilding crews can come in and put up new scaffolding. If I'm not shutting down for a good you know, eight to nine hours to do that, then what I did the day before is just all for naught because I'm not going to see the benefit. And uh, that was the reason that I put the sleep chapter so early in the book, because I wanted people to understand that. And I wanted people to understand that sleep is a priority. Um, but a lot of us, you know, me, you, a lot of people listening to this podcast, uh, I'm, I'm guessing have been or are still chronically sleep deprived
0: absolutely and i think you, when you said about the soft tissue um not being able to repair that's what i saw and you hear everyone in the fire service can can you know think of people that say this oh it's always the fit guys that get hurt and it's the you know the guy with the cheeto powder all over their big old belly sitting on a lazy boy saying it but it's true though there, there's a physiological reason because we are training on the fire ground we're training in the gym and with all the best intentions what's the alternative not training well that's not going to happen but we you know the average firefighter is in a fifty six hour work week so they're not given the rest and recovery they need and and it, I talk about this a lot you know we have people working in in banks that tap out of forty hours they go to bed and we have responders that you know have life and death in their hands that we work you know another two days, basically, another 16 hours every single week. And it's, it's completely backwards. And that, to me, I believe, is a, is a strong, strong reason behind the musculoskeletal injuries, the strokes, the, the cancers, the heart disease, and the mental health issues that we see.
1: Yeah, it, it, all of it contributes to that because, you know, the, the stress of not sleeping, you're not clearing toxins, your cortisol level is going up. Uh, you know, cortisol level on both the short and long term, has has really bad effects. You know, it's it, it is going to make you more prone to all of those things. Um, you know, those uh, not sleeping uh, elevates your blood pressure because well, you know what happens. Well, you're tired. Your body knows you need to stay up during the day, and this is why you know sleep apnea patients. Uh, you know, one of the first uh, you know uh, signs that we see of somebody might have sleep apnea is that their blood pressure is elevated, and we can't find another cause for it. And and basically, what it is is. It, you're tired and your body is trying to stimulate you to stay awake because you're not getting enough sleep and in the process of your body providing that stimulation that stimulation is also elevating your blood pressure so uh, it it just wreaks havoc on on your hormonal access Uh, it's the long-term effects uh short term short term effects we've all felt but then the, you know there's also the long term effects of sleep deprivation and i don't know what for for people who uh, you know work 24s you know you know people working working fire and first responders i don't know what the answer is because you can't control you know oh you know we got we got 7 hours uninterrupted without a call i've worked 24 hour er shifts which i i hate and i just won't do it anymore because inevitably I I sleep for two hours and then at two in the morning, somebody decides to come in with their shoulder pain that they've had for four years, but, but they, but they rolled over in the middle of the night and they let out a noise and their wife said, that's it. You're going to the ER. Um, and you just, you just don't get the sleep on the, on those 24s. And I I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's, this is the way that especially with fire has been done for so long. Uh, I don't know if realistically you could start. I, I, I don't know if there's a firehouse out there that runs in eight or twelve hour shifts. Not that I'm aware of, anyway.
0: No, and I don't think that is the answer. I've asked a lot of these, you know, sleep medicine experts, and um, to me, it's just about giving rest and recovery in between. So there's um, the Northeast. There's uh, Boca Raton here in Florida. There's um, you know some other departments sprinkled around the country that do twenty four seventy two, which is still a forty two hour work week. But that gives them that extra twenty four hours in between to actually you know really get some rest and recovery, and I think that's the only way we can do it twenty fours I think makes sense in the fire service. It doesn't make sense to do twelves and you look at the alternating days and nights i mean they're horrific I mean law enforcement's a perfect example you know it's, it's it you notice when you see a really fit looking cop <laughs> so um yeah, and then you know nurses and doctors as well, so I think that's how we do it is if we are asking any profession to be awake during the day, you give them a shorter work week than the average clerical, you know, nine to fiver.
1: Yeah, I think you have to. You know, and and unfortunately, when a lot of us, when we're young, um, and I've seen young physicians do this too, I've seen young, you know, I I like eight hour shifts and, you know, tens are tolerable. I don't, uh, once we get to 12, I start really disliking it. uh, And I just absolutely won't do 24s. But uh, I see younger physicians that they they want the twelves. You know, they're like, "Well, I can, I can work. If I work twelves, then I can reach the number of hours that I want in the week sooner, and then I can take a three four day weekend. And you know, and that's and their body can recover from that. So that's all they're thinking about it. The reason I don't like working a twelve is if I work a twelve, that's all I can do that day. I, it's, it's almost impossible. It really is impossible for me to work a 12 and get a workout in. And I like, I like to be able to get a workout in, even if it's just a brief workout and then work my shift and then have a little bit of time to decompress at the end of the day. Um, And with a 12, you just can't do that. So uh, I think, you know, again, it's performance versus longevity. People look at, Hey, I want to work, I want to work these 12s because then I get longer weekends. For the same pay. And I'm in my late 20s, early 30s, and, and I don't mind doing that. Well, yeah, you don't mind it now, but you know, the the long-term effects of you work 12 hour shifts and you and you would go four days out of the week not working out, and then two days working out and one day is a day off, and you did that for 10 years. And now you have injuries because you were doing the the weekend warrior style of working out and pushing it too hard. And also you're just in bad shape because you didn't have a consistent workout program.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about the hormones being disruptive from sleep deprivation as well. One thing that, again, this has just, you know, been testified by so many of the, the sleep experts is the impact on testosterone. And what mm-hmm. I've seen, which is terrifying <laughs> to me, is you ask pretty much any firefighter, you know, the female firefighters tend not to be as cognizant of their testosterone, even though, as you know, it factors into to women as well. But young, young firefighters, you know, late 20s, early 30s um, that have been on for a certain amount of time are their teas in the toilet and I'm mm-hmm. seeing now, rather than again addressing the underlying reason, which is, you know, my opinion, sleep and, you know, obviously strength training and nutrition, um, we're giving out testosterone like candy to very, very young people that ultimately are going to be, that th- that's it, they're they're addicted to it then because, you know, everything's going to break down and the body's not going to make its own anymore. So, you know, what are you seeing as far as that in young people? And But then conversely, when are you seeing that the, you know, the application is justified too? Uh,
1: wow. So it's, it, it's, 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 it's fairly, it's a fairly complex issue and a fairly complex question, but it's, uh, sleep plays a huge role in it. So, you know, it, within the soft community, a lot, a lot, there, there was, there was a bit of a debate when uh, when it was first noticed that a a huge number of people in the special operations community were getting on testosterone replacement so the question was are we doing something that is causing that you know is are we doing something through long term lifestyle that's causing their testosterone to need replacement or is this just a matter of these are A-type personality operators, and when they start to slow down, they want that edge. And the answer to that question is yes to both, to, to an extent, right? But but certainly we know that you know long-term reverse cycle, you know, going out and doing you know, if I think about you know what my body went through in Ranger School in Special Forces selection, you know. Going sometimes days with no sleep at all, or in SF selection, getting you know three hour, three hours and uh, three and a half hours to three hours forty five minutes of sleep a night, and, and doing really physically demanding tasks during the day. You know this is uh, you're you're basically running up compound credit. You know you're you're running up interest on your credit card and then interest on the interest as you do that that you have to pay at some point, and then you combine that in the military with uh, the Huge number of us that have some type of traumatic brain injury, um, secondary to being in close proximity to explosions, secondary to, you know, uh, taking a fall and cracking your noggin. You know, I've been knocked unconscious on jumps before. Um, that all plays a role in it as well. And uh, so, you know, when when is it warranted, I guess, you know, being the question, I, I think I I look at the people that need it and, you know, you know, clinically they have a need, you know, as I did, I'm on testosterone replacement, right? So, so clinically I had a need, uh, my exercise tolerance was terrible. I was tired all the time. I couldn't sleep at night, but then was tired all day. Um, uh, my, my muscle mass was going down. I was putting on body fat that I just, no matter what I did, I couldn't get that body fat off. My libido was in the toilet. I, and then sure enough my numbers backed it up I needed testosterone replacement. All of those things in my career leading up to that undoubtedly played a part in it. So I would say anybody who clinically shows a need and uh, and their levels are, are below normal and, and I don't like I don't like averaging people for age either. you know they'll say well you know the average 55 year old has testosterone levels of this. Well, that's not the level that I'm seeking to perform at. I'm seeking to perform at a higher level than that. You know. And, and what is average doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's normal. So those of us that show a clinical need and show the lab values for it need to get replacement. For some people, that might be at some point in their 30s, unfortunately. Um, you know, hopefully, for most people, it'll be in their 40s or in their 50s. And then we need to look at this next generation coming up and see what we can do differently in how they train to keep them from being in this situation down the road. So protecting them from TBI, identifying TBI early, um, because we do know that what's what's worse than TBI is when you get what's called two-hit TBI. So you get a traumatic brain injury, and then you follow that up with another one, right? So if somebody gets TBI, that means they're pulled out for a little bit. To to get a proper recovery before they go back in, um, paying closer attention to people's sleep hygiene in their early twenties and onward, so that their cortisol levels are not off the charts and you know driving their testosterone levels into the toilet. So, uh, you know, rather than I think that's the best approach. You know, ra- rather than try to try to figure out what a coulda shoulda with those who need it now. I think they just need it. I think it's a legitimate need, and then take that information and apply it to the next generation. So hopefully, they're not having the issues that we're having.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I agree, especially with the sleep thing. I mean, Kurt Parsley's been on a few times. Navy SEAL turned physician, um, and he, you know, really had an aha moment with sleep with his young SEALs, his you know, uber athletes. Um, and was able to, you know, turn a lot of them around just by going to command and getting them to change the way they were training to, you know, get them more rest and recovery. And I think that's what I'm seeing in the fire service on the younger people. As you said, if there's TBIs involved, if they're, you know, combat athletes or, you know, were, were in the military prior, I don't think fire service, we don't get too much trauma to the head. And I'm sure most of mine are from martial arts. Um, but you know conversely then you go to a doctor and you get someone who does need it or maybe just needs to to go to days for a while you know whatever it is and they have that scale and kirk was uh was kind of telling me the history of that in the first conversation we did and it was somewhere i forget now but one of the towns that has the ivy league schools in the northeast um and that range from i think it's at 150 or 250 up to you know 950. the the bottom one was the eight-year-old sedentary dude in town and the top one was the you know the eighteen year old football player, so you know when when most people go and the physician goes oh you're fine you're above two hundred, no you're at granddad almost dead <laughs> level and you're a thirty five year old firefighter so as you said you got to understand you know where you are and I think I don't know you know what yours is but naturally mine I look at myself if I'm not around five hundred then then I'm low you know but if I went to a physician and I was at two sixty. He'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, you're good." Well, no, I, I disagree completely. So, so yeah, I think understanding that, you know, trying the holistic versions first if you're able to, and that's what I want to try and move the needle in the the fire service, you know, nationally with our work week. But but yeah, but then if if you've expended all those those options or you just simply cannot, you know, get it up with rest and recovery. Then, you know, I think that's when we go to supplementation, but going to your doctor, being told you're low and immediately being prescribed tests, I think is very, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the right word? Irresponsible by the medical provider.
1: Yeah. Uh, equi- and and you notice that I, t- I talk about that in the book that, you know, somebody comes to their doctor and their their blood pressure is high. It's. Typically a physician will say, all right, we're going to try these lifestyle changes, but they're almost just giving lip service to that. They, they halfway don't expect the person to really do it anyway. Um, I don't think we, they give really good instructions in how to do it. You know, they give them a pamphlet. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, somebody comes somebody in their thirties and I'm not, uh, so I haven't, I have not done the training to, to prescribe, although I mean, legally I could prescribe testosterone, uh, but, but since I haven't done training in it, uh, I don't do it. And uh, that I was going to do that training last year, and then COVID got in the way. And I, I still plan on doing it at some point in the near future because it's something number one for my own edu- uh, education. I'm interested in it, um, and also I, I think that it's an, it's another way that I can help help guys my age, and you know help you know guys like you uh, who want to still be active, want to still be kicking ass and pushing the envelope in their 40s and 50s. Um, but typically what should happen is if somebody comes in, in their thirties, those are all the questions that should get asked. Well, what, you know, how much are you, you know, sleep would probably be the first question. And then what are you eating? And then what's your exercise routine like, right? Cause, cause all of those things are going to play into it. And the whole, you know, there's, there's, there, there's a mixed bag of, uh, of supplements out there that, you know, people claim can boost testosterone. I don't know there, you know, it's, you know, for every study that shows that they do work, uh, you can find another study that says they don't. So, but, but I, there is data to show that if you are getting between seven and nine hours of, of restful, excuse me, of restful sleep a night and you're eating right. Getting your proper macros in the in the proper portions or proportions, uh, and you're exercising and doing strength training and building muscle mass, then your testosterone is going to be higher. So you know that that is the starting point. And then uh, if that doesn't work, you know if you try that for three months and that doesn't work, then you start looking at okay, now what? Now we need to to supplement your testosterone. Um, unfortunately. I, I, again, I think it, it, the drive-through medicine type world that we live in makes that a little bit difficult. And I can tell you this, and I and I would so I would I would caution all of your listeners out there if there, if there's somebody who is either on it or is wondering if they need to be on it, you need to go to a a physician who has had training in hormone replacement, not somebody who taught themselves. So they need to, and you need to ask them specifically. What training and certification do you have? And if they say, oh, well, when I was going through family medicine residency, I was mentored by it. Nope, we're done, right? It needs to be, you know, I went to this course and then, and then I took this exam. You know, there's they call them board certifications. It's, it's really a, a test that you take and there's a couple of them out there in hormone replacement and testosterone replacement, but they need to have that type of training. Otherwise, they're going to try to be doing it by algorithm, um, you know, this cookbook medicine that I don't, that I'm not a fan of. And and I've even had, uh, I've had guys around my age, former SF guys, tell me, oh, I went to my doctor, I asked him, you know, do we need to draw labs? And he was like, oh, you know, you, you just want to get jacked? I'll write you for it right now. That is incredibly cavalier and incredibly dangerous, and that's not what you want to do. You do need to have a battery of tests. You need to make sure all your other thing, your kidney function is fine. Your thyroid function is fine. It's not any of these other things because you, you might have something totally different going on. Your energy level might be down because you've got Hashimoto's thyroiditis or something of that nature. Uh, and, and testosterone is not even the issue. So you need to have a battery, of lab tests. You need to have periodic lab tests. You need to be monitored, um, for a lot of things that I won't even get into. Um, but yeah, definitely, if, if you're going to a physician who's hasn't had training in it, he's cavalier, and it's like, oh, I know I can prescribe this, and they're not going to pull my license, uh, that's not the right answer.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. That was a, that was a great kind of um, you know, explanation and, and a, a kind of checklist for people to follow. Um, you had a disclaimer in your book, like everyone does, you know, when, when you're talking about exercise, I think, you know, check with your doctor before you exercise. And it, it kind of struck me. I'm like, what people need to do is look at their doctor before they ask him if they should exercise. <laughs> if your doctor mm-hmm. looks like they don't exercise, maybe you right. should ask a different doctor before you <laughs> get a, advice on, you know, wellness stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, John Colker is, a um, is a heart attack survivor. And he uh, really serious. I mean, he had a widowmaker, uh, you know, and has uh, I believe two or three stents placed. Uh, he was clinically dead, and you know, if it wasn't for CPR and an AED being there, um, he he wouldn't have wouldn't have come back. And since then, he does triathlete triathlons, and uh, he's hiking the Appalachian Trail. Wow. Um, yeah, he's uh, his name's John Colker. Um, if you look him up on Instagram. Uh, I think Ironheart at the AT or Ironheart on the AT, you can, you can find him and he documents uh, everything he does there. But he, when he was doing triathlons, his cardiologist didn't want him doing triathlons. And uh, he called me up and he was a little bit concerned. He's like, Mike, I I just, I love doing this and I don't want to stop. And my doctor's concerned and, you know, my blood pressure looks great and my cholesterol is great. And uh, my imaging looks fine. And my EKG is fine. But he just, he doesn't want me doing it. And I said, well, John, you're, you're in uncharted territory. You know, it's, if somebody buys a car, if somebody buys a Toyota Corolla and they want to take it off-roading, well, nobody else has taken a Toyota Corolla off-roading. So we don't know how it's going to perform. So he's just concerned about this. I said, but look, man, if you knew that you were going to die in the middle of a triathlon, like not tomorrow but 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 I told you I've seen the future and you are going to have a massive cardiac event and you're going to die in a triathlon would you be okay with that would you be going out doing something that you love and he said absolutely I would be and I said then it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your I say it doesn't matter what your doctor says I said now the conversation that I would have with your doctor is look I love this I'm going to keep doing this I'm not going to hold you responsible If something happens, are you going to continue to be my cardiologist or do I need to find another cardiologist? And I mean, and that's the fact of the matter is, is when when you're doing stuff outside the norm and, you know, much as I, you know, I talk about in the book that we're sold a bill of goods as middle-aged men, that our activity level should be such and such, right? Basically 20 minute walk three times a week and playing golf on the weekends, right? Nobody tells us we, that we should be doing Spartan races and the tactical games and, you know, CrossFit competitions, jujitsu competitions, because that's not average. So because it's not average, people don't think it's normal. And it's the same with heart attack survivors, stroke survivors. When they want to do these extreme things, they're in uncharted territory. So that scares people. So, so people don't want to back that up. Um, but life is short. So you know, you got to do what, you, what you're what you going to get the reward out of. And to me, you know, I, I still want to be out there measuring myself against myself, against, you know, against how I, I was a year two years ago and how I'm going to be a year or two years from now and measuring myself against other individuals. Uh, I still want to be out there doing it. And I don't care that it's not average because it's, you know, I've, I've tried to live my life above average i've tried to live my life to the right side of that bell curve and i want to keep living my life to the right side of that bell curve
0: absolutely well that's great great advice and i think you know that's just it Uh, i've got my brother-in-law actually had a a stroke very recently and he's Mm. 29 i think um and it was just this bizarre very very mild um you know venous bleed that just kind of got between the the layers on the outside of the brain but i mean he had I think he lost his vision, um, his speech, his movement. I think all he could do was actually hear for a while. And then as the brain slowly or the body slowly absorbed the blood, he started going back and he's almost completely normal now. But it was interesting. Mm -hmm. They told him, you have the same chance of having this happen again as anyone else. So he kind of had the opposite advice. They basically were saying, no, this was such a, a strange event. We don't see any kind of structural issues at all this happens in, you know in the body in different places you just had it in this one specific place that caused this reaction but they were like no don't don't be scared of going out there and doing things again so he's probably not going to do like full contact rugby anymore but um but yeah i mean so it was it was quite refreshing to hear they were like no you know don't don't be afraid of this happening go out and and live your life so i would never heard yeah. that before wow so wow. I, I'm going to leave nutrition and some of the other areas for people to read the book so we don't <laughs> pull the whole book out of you. Um, I okay. got one more area I want to touch on, and then we'll go to some closing questions. Um, I'd seen you post quite a lot, probably what, a couple of months ago now, about um, transdermal fentanyl overdoses, especially in law enforcement. So I would love to get your perspective on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I took I I took a little bit of heat from that and I I I I upset some people with that. So and this I, I talked about in the post and I talked about it on my podcast that this this all stems from some disinformation that was put out by the DEA a few years ago. I think it, uh I think I said it in the podcast. I think it was 2015 time frame-ish. <clears throat> and uh, you know, basically you have you know, you have fentanyl, you have sous fentanyl, you have these fentanyl derivatives. Uh, some of which are coming from China. A lot of it's coming over the Southern border. Uh, And this stuff is getting cut into street drugs and getting sold on the streets. Well, some disinformation, there was a disinformation, or I, I should, I should, let me clarify a misinformation campaign. Disinformation I think is considered deliberate. So this was misinformation. So this was just incorrect information that mere contact with this. So touching Fentanyl powder, you could transdermally uh, absorb enough without a carrier agent. Which, if you think of a fentanyl patch, there's a carrier agent in there to help it uh, across the skin and help it be absorbed. So, uh, intact skin touching dry fentanyl powder um, absorption would be minimal. It'd be almost. It would be. It, it would be impossible to absorb enough to overdose, to become uh, unconscious. But they were framing this as that you could overdose from touching it or from even inhaling it. And what that did is it created uh, a culture of paranoia, especially in law enforcement. And uh, the way I first found out about it was I was contacted by a law enforcement agency that asked me if I would uh, prescribe them inhaled Narcan and, that I, and I would act as their medical, they, I would write a protocol for them to use it. And that's what caused me to first uh, kind of do some research into this. But what I found out is in all of these cases, and the, the YouTube is full of these cases of where you see a police officer uh, passing out or, uh, you know, uh, having some type of symptoms and they give them Narcan, there has not been one single case of a positive drug screen uh, from any of these cases, not one. Okay, now not all those cases have had a tox screen run afterwards, but some have, and again, none of them have showed up positive for opiates. There's a, a another piece of misinformation that's out there is well, once you get the Narcan, that makes the drug that makes the drug screen clean. That's not the way it works. All that Narcan does is compete with receptors. It doesn't take the metabolites out of your system. So you will still show up positive for opiates, even if I pumped you full of Narcan. Intranasal, IV, doesn't matter. Um, my issue with this whole thing is, and I don't, I don't blame any of these officers, and no, they're not faking, as some people have said. They have been mentally conditioned that you see a white powder and uh, this can kill you. So what happens? They see a white powder. They see they have a little bit of it on their fingers. And their first thought of it is, oh, we, we learned about this in training. This could be fentanyl. And they feel their heart rate go up, right? Because it, it, it's basically, it's it's triggered that memory and their heart rate goes up and they're sweating. So this is a reaction to the information that they've been given, not the substance that they're touching. but it's impossible to differentiate the two. So now you have this reaction and they don't know what a fentanyl OD looks like. So they interpret their own adrenaline rush as a reaction to the fentanyl. And that's why when you see in a lot of these cases, officers described dizziness, heart racing, dry mouth, none of those things are typically associated with fentanyl overdose, right? These are typically associated with a state of anxiousness, uh, in extreme cases a panic attack adrenaline surge and that's typically what we're seeing in these cases the san diego video was pretty classic for that and the individual had what we call conversion disorder that is you know rookie cop so conditioned to be absolutely terrified of fentanyl didn't even touch it he was just in in an open air proximity to it and there's no possible way they've done the studies you would have to be basically in the pill factory with no respirator for 30 minutes to even absorb an amount that you would feel, much less overdose. So open air, a baggie opened, no possible way that you're going to inhale enough to OD. So my big concern, because I'm a huge supporter of law enforcement, is they have enough things to worry about without now also worrying about this that's not a real thing. So we need to take that off the table. We need to give them proper education that just being in proximity to fentanyl is not going to be an issue. Just touching it with intact skin is not going to be an issue. You know, what if, God forbid, one of them is completely incapacitated for all the reasons that I described, and they go down, and it was in the middle of a drug bust, and now you got a there, and now there's a drug dealer there, looking at this cop who's collapsed in front of them and there's their gun and there's the keys to their cruiser and everything else. And now that cop's in danger through no fault of their own. So that's why the, the education aspect of this is so important that we get the right information out there. And people realize that these cases that we're seeing, these YouTube videos are not fentanyl overdoses. They just absolutely are not. And uh, we need to stop pretending that they are
0: see it's so interesting here one of my uh previous guests jared was asking me to ask you as well he he's a tactical medic he's a firefighter Mm -hmm. but he works with swat as well Mm -hmm. um and i remember looking at some of the the videos and obviously you know i mean i can't remember the number of times that i've used narcan you know sometimes literally as people took their last breath so those are definitely some of the the true life-saving events that i you know look back on my career and and Know that you made a difference, but um, yeah, they're not breathing hard. They're they're limp. They're you know not they're not even fighting to breathe because that that drive has been taken from them. So they're you know very very passive. And you see some of these videos, and they de- definitely do look more like hyper events than they do ODs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one. uh, I did see one video, and I'm I'm because I'm not a hundred percent sure it's the same case. I'm not gonna. I saw one that looked fairly convincing, like like it might've been an overdose. And, uh, I believe it came out later that that individual, like a year later, uh, came up positive on a periodic urinalysis and was busted and basically had been swiping evidence and, and taking like taking Percocets, uh, and they thought that that's, you know, in reflection, looking back on that initial incident, that what had happened was he had taken some Percocet on the job. Uh, and it's, you know, he he'd gone off to the bathroom, taken some Percocet and then come back. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to say which video it was because I'm not a hundred percent sure those, those two were the same incident, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, this whole thing has, has been a mess. And, uh, I, I took a lot of heat for it uh, from some law enforcement, including the officer who gave the the Narcan in that video. Um, he took offense to me, to me second guessing him. And part of the problem is too, is a lot of physicians have been uh, dismissive about this. And rather than seeking to educate, they've, uh, they've resorted to making some funny memes about it. And, uh, oh, look, you know, these look at these police officers who don't know the difference between a panic attack and a fentanyl overdose. Ha ha ha. Well, it's not, it's not funny. (laughs) It's not funny at all. It's uh, you know, that's, that's, we've, we have failed medical directors and EMS directors and toxicologists have failed. So, and, uh, and unfortunately, that's one of the reasons that my comments got drowned out because one of the people that was commenting the loudest about that video is a toxicologist, but if if you go back and you look at his history, he's been very anti-police in a lot of things that he's written, couching himself as a as an expert uh, when he clearly was not. You know, talking outside of his lane. Also, uh, you know, said some uh, said some things in writing as they pertain pertain to anti leo organizations like BLM. So th- this you know this was not a person who was looked on as a friend of law enforcement and who was making his statements about fentanyl from a place of trying to help LEOs do their job and to educate them. So his what he said basically got dismissed. And since I was saying similar things to what he was saying, um, a lot of things that I said, you know, were dismissed, you know, in spite of my history and my background. I, I was really happy that a couple of uh, physicians that I know and that I respect, and you know, who are very pro law enforcement, reached out to me and said, uh, "Hey, I really appreciate you staying on this because you're doing it for all the right reasons. And I think more people are going to listen to you than that other guy, even though he has a a blue check mark and a bigger presence online. Um, you know, simply because of the fact that you're known to be somebody who supports law enforcement and and wants them to have the right tools for the right job."
0: Beautiful. Well, I, I mean, I certainly learned something. I mean, it was not something that I was aware of prior to your videos and then hearing you explain it, you know, in long form um, further bolsters that because, I mean, obviously, ODs are real. Sadly, I've lost several firefighters to ODs, but um I've also watched the absolute miracle that is Narcan to truly save An overdose so great drug but i mean hopefully that will appease some fears and you know still carry it it's an incredible drug but and the beautiful thing as well it's a great diagnostic drug you know you can give it if it doesn't work all right sweet it was a panic attack (laughs) but um,
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: well i know you've got to go i know you're going to be talking to uh to some some people in a few minutes so for people listening where can they find the book honed and then where can they find your uh gray beard performance
1: uh, so you can uh, if, if you just want one-stop shopping, you can go to graybeardperformance.com and if you scroll down yeah, you can the link to buy my book on Amazon is there. Again, the title of the book is Honed Finding your Edge as a Man over 40. Uh, it's on Amazon, it's on barnnes Uh or you can get it right through my re- website. If you do go to my website, you can also subscribe to be on my mailing list. Um, my plan is to do a, a kind of a newsletter format. That'll be a follow-up to my book in the future. Um, That's also where you can buy my supplements, my fight gear. And hopefully as the brand expands to a life and lifestyle brand, encompassing everything, that'll be where you go uh, to, to basically interface with all of that moving forward.
0: Beautiful. Well, Mike, I want to say thank you for yet another great conversation. It's been very educational. Um, as we talked, I think before we start recording, what I loved about the book is that you wrote about principles rather than here's what you should eat, here's how you should exercise. And I think that is key for each person finding their own version of their wellness journey.
1: Yeah, and that's that's what I wanted in writing the book. Is you know, I wanted I wanted the the possibility that you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people could incorporate the book, rather than write a very specific nutrition plan, a very specific exercise plan that maybe a thousand people could incorporate and benefit from. So uh, I'm 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 glad you uh, you you know one of the things that I set out to do. You specifically said that I, I managed to do, and I'm very pleased with that. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.